I want us to look into John's Gospel this morning, so if you have your Bible, turn to the first chapter of John. We're in a mini-series on the beginnings in the Gospels. Look with me just at the first two verses. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Those verses are just packed, if you will, with truth, with revelation, with understanding. And uh, we are just going to be able to scratch the surface, if you will, this morning. Each of the four Gospels, as you read them, and we're going to be studying through them on an integrated basis. It's called the harmony of the Gospels, rather than dealing with them individually over the next months and years, presumably. But as we study through all the Gospels, uh, all four Gospels, and uh, each one begins appropriately enough with uh, some kind of reference to uh, the beginning, as you might expect. Last week, we started with Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and, and Mark uses the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he, Mark is telling us that, that, that his account is just the beginning. I suggest you Luke picks up the account in the book of Acts, but the gospel is still being written. And, and who's writing the gospel today? We are, absolutely. Christians today, we're still writing the gospel. The good news is still being uh, expressed, shared, taught, and written about. Matthew opens his account of the origin of Jesus Christ with a genealogy. And, and his genealogy traces Jesus' descent from his ancestor Abraham. Luke, in his opening, acknowledges this. He says, the things that have been believed or fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So, so Luke is saying, I'm going right back to the very eyewitnesses, to the beginning, people who saw him and heard him and walked with him. And I want to share with you uh, from that beginning. And then John begins his gospel with three words, three very familiar words to us. And these words are familiar from Genesis 1.1. What are the three words? In the beginning. In the beginning. Now, if you go back to Genesis 1.1, we see those same three words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I often tell people, if you, if you have trouble with the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God you're going to have trouble with the whole Bible. If you can't believe those words, you're done for right from the get-go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John picks up on that theme, I think, interestingly, when he says, also, in the beginning. So when God, God creates, and we have the book of Genesis, we see God creating man, God creating the universe, God speaking into darkness, and light appearing, if you will. 
So John picks up on that theme, and John is going to speak about not the, the original creation, he's going to speak about God's new creation, his recreation. So it's logical for him then to hitchhike on that phrase, in the beginning. Because God is going to what? He's going to recreate men and women, isn't he? Are not you and I recreated spiritually, born again? And as well, Jesus brings light into the darkness, a dark world where there is no hope. And so again, John says, in the beginning. So this is a brand new beginning, if you will, that he's announcing. Am I making sense to you? It's not until the end of John's gospel in chapter 20, verse 31, it's not to the end of his gospel that he actually states his purpose in writing. He tells us, he says, he wrote this, that his readers may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing that we may have life in his name. And so he records all these marvelous things about who Jesus is and all that Jesus does so that we might know that he is in fact the Christ, he is in fact the Son of God, and that we may in fact believe and have life as a result of believing. Now while Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three what they're called synoptics, they they synopsize, they they pull together uh, the, the same themes, while they address the general life and ministry of Jesus. I mean, you read about his baptism, you read about his miracles, uh, and these things, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, help to explain who he is, and as well, uh, give us an understanding of the character of God's presence with Jesus on earth. But also, we read uh, through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, his role as Israel's Messiah, and when you read through the Gospels, especially Matthew, there's lots of uh, messianic prophecies that are woven through those books, uh, and as well, uh, many links to Judaism. And so the, Matthew, Mark, and Luke help us answer some of those more general, broad questions of, of who Jesus is. But there is one very, very important and very particular question that needs to be more fully addressed. And when you read the first three Gospels, it, they're, they're, it's kind of introduced, the theme. But it's left to John to give a much fuller explanation and understanding of this one particular question. And that question is very simply this. Did Jesus have a pre-existence? Now, for you and I, you know, if you've been a Christian long at all and you've been reading your Bible, you know the answer to that question. But for John's readers, this is, this is something that is absolutely unknown to them. And it is a point of very important instruction for John. Did Jesus have a preexistence? The first 18 verses of chapter 1 of John, it, it's formally called the prologue. So it, it comes before uh, the full body of his gospel. But the prologue, if you will, is the most complete, it's the most explicit study of Jesus Christ's pre-existence in the New Testament. It is a significant, significant document. 
The significance of Jesus is not merely in his ability to be a powerful worker of mighty deeds, wonders, and miracles. The significance of Jesus is not even in the fact that he is a wise teacher. Though he is those things, the significance of Jesus is that he is God become flesh. He is God become a man. This is absolutely amazing. John describes Jesus in chapter 1 in terms that are designed to grab the, the, the reader's attention. He says these things in this prologue that just grab your attention and make you want to go read and find out more about who Jesus is. Remember, John's writing to a very, very interesting audience. He's writing to a universal audience, not only the Greeks, but also to a Jewish audience. So we want to find out who is his. But chapter 1, the first 18 verses, give us these, these hints and these expressions. They go, wow, I want to go explore this. The opening verses of John's Gospel express the most profound truth in the universe. This is not exaggerating. These verses express the fact that the eternal, infinite God became a man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you and I may take that for granted. We say, oh, I knew that. But again, you have to transport yourself back into a culture, into an environment where, where this was absolutely unheard of. That the, the infinite God would become a man. And this man was the man, Jesus Christ. This would just, just take your breath away. The deity of Jesus Christ is an essential and non-negotiable tenet of the Christian faith. Jesus is God. He was not just a good man, not just a religious leader, not just a prophet, though he was all these things. But most importantly, he was and still is Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's who he is. He is with us every moment, every second of the day and night. Aren't you glad that he doesn't sleep? He doesn't go off and take a nap and forget about us. He's with us continuously. Now John begins by introducing Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. That's a translation of the Greek word logos, and that's a technical term. It's not until verse 14, by the way, that we're told that the Word became flesh and we get more insight and understanding into the very fact that this word, this apparently impersonal word, is actually takes on flesh and becomes Jesus. The phrase, in the beginning, refers to the beginning of all of creation, the beginning of the universe, much as Genesis 1.1. But John uses it in a unique way. He says, in the beginning, notice he doesn't say, in the beginning, Jesus, in the beginning, God, 
he says, in the beginning, how does he complete the phrase? Was the word. In the beginning was the word. He's What he's saying is Jesus Christ was already in existence when the heavens and the earth were created. That's what he's telling us. Jesus is not a created being, but he existed from all eternity. Since time began with the creation of the physical universe, whatever existed before that creation would be eternal. When did time begin? With the creation of, 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 of the universe. That's when time began. So whatever whatever existed before time began would be called, termed what? Eternal. You with me? The word, the logos, if you will, did not then begin to be, but at that point at which all else began to be, he already was. He was pre-existent. This is what John is telling us in those first few words of his gospel. In the beginning, whenever that was, and there's much conjecture about when that was, how old the universe is, and how old the world is, and how old man is. And, you know, most of you are familiar with evolution and, and, and all of the theory of that. No one knows. No one knows if the, if the earth, the universe is, is 6,000, 10,000, 25,000 years old or 13 billion years old. No one knows. But John says, in the beginning, whenever that was, he already was. Isn't that marvelous? Such a simple statement. In the beginning was the Word. In other words, the Word, the Logos, is before time, is eternal. This is a proof that John puts forth for Christ's divine nature. For only God is eternal. If he's saying that Christ was preexistent, that means Christ is eternal. That means because only God's eternal, therefore Christ is eternal. And he is God. Now, word is the English translation, as I suggested, of the Greek term logos, which John uses four times in chapter 1. That, that word includes more than just the English translation word. That term logos includes more. It's more than just word. A word is an idea, isn't it? A word is an idea expressed through a combination of letters, a combination of sounds. But without the idea or the concept behind the combination of letters or sounds, then that word becomes meaningless, doesn't it? The letters K-F-W-B. K-F-W-B. Do those letters represent anything to us? Is there a concept behind those letters? A radio station. That's right. Some of you still listen to radio. 
Those letters represent a radio station. But, but just think about this. Simply just as a combination of letters or sounds, if it could really be pronounced, it would have no meaning whatsoever because there would be no concept behind it or attached to it. Am I making sense to you? And so, in the same way, the term logos implies three things. It implies, first of all, the intelligence behind the idea. This is why I'm suggesting to you that it means more than just word. The term implies in the intelligence behind the idea. It implies also the idea itself. But not only that, it implies the transmissible expression of that idea. That that idea is actually expressible. All of that is implied by that word, by that thought, by that concept, logos. The logos in, in Greek philosophy was used to denote the ultimate intelligence the ultimate mind, if you will, that ruled the universe and gave meaning to everything. Now, for the Greeks, this was, this was an impersonal force or an impersonal source or an impersonal influence. It wasn't a personal thing. It wasn't a person. It was the logos. It was the, the all-governing intelligence there, there are many in, in Christianity today who, who actually approach this much the same way. We have a movement called intelligent design. Some of you may have heard that phrase, and you have some understanding of what that is. The intelligent design people studiously stay away from identifying the intelligent designer as God. Because they don't want to be lumped in with the creationists and they try to gain some measure of val- uh, validity in the scientific community. So they're saying, well, everything speaks, it's designed. You, you see design in everything. So there is intelligent design. But they stop short of saying it's God. And so it gives the impression that in, 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 in many ways, their understanding and their expression and their, uh, um, uh, Encouragement of eternal of intelligent design is no different, really, in a lot of ways, than this idea of this this intelligence that governs everything in the design of the universe. Now, clearly, there's a difference. We would know that and understand that, but in how it's expressed to the world, it's not. There's not much difference there. Now, John presents Jesus as the personification, the embodiment of logos. But unlike the Greeks, Jesus is not an impersonal source. He's not an impersonal force. You know, when the old Star Wars movies came out years ago, some of you remember those, a lot of Christians got all excited because of the force. You know, when Obi-Wan said to Luke, Luke, use the force. Christians go, oh, the Holy Spirit. No, that's Eastern mysticism. It has nothing to do with Christianity. It's an impersonal force that Luke was to call on, that Luke was to, Luke was to tap into, if you will. This is the same concept of this, this, this logos, if you will. 
But in Christ, the true Logos, who was from God, became a man. And this was absolutely foreign to Greek thought. This Logos, this all-intelligence, did not become a man, could not become a man, could not be localized. But Logos was not just a Greek concept. The Jews had their own sense, though they may not have used the term necessary, Logos, as the Greeks would. The Jews understood and had the concept of the Word of God. And uh, the Word of God was a theme that was throughout the Old Testament, well known to the Jews, well known to us. The Word of God was the expression, from a Jewish vantage point, the Word of God was the expression of God's power and God's wisdom. In other words, by God's Word, He exemplified His power, He exhibited His power by creating the universe. God spoke, creation came into existence. He revealed His Word and His wisdom to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to the prophets. The Word of the Lord would come to the prophets. The Word of the Lord was revealed. The Word of the Lord is powerful. So we understand that theme. So John presents Jesus to his Jewish readers as the very incarnation now of divine power and revelation or wisdom. In him is the embodiment of all of God's attributes, all of God's power and wisdom and revelation. And as we see this witnessed and played out by his miracles and as well his teaching. As the incarnate word, Jesus Christ is God's final word to mankind. Jesus Christ is God's final word. Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews tells us. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. It's not enough that God gave his word. It's not enough that God gave his law. It's not enough that God spoke through the prophets. It's not enough that God spoke through angels. Now, God speaks in the one final way to mankind, and he speaks to us through who? Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's final word. And we would be fools not to pay attention to that final word. It's like he's saying, I'm telling you one last time. Pay attention. I've come down to live amongst you. I'm speaking to you eyeball to eyeball. We'd be an absolute fool not to pay attention. We'd be foolish to ignore him. And certainly we'd be foolish to reject him. And yet John will go on to tell us that he came to his own and his own received him not, rejected him. John then says that in his eternal coexist or pre-existence, I should say, his eternal pre-existence, the Word was now with God. So the Word was God, talking about his pre-existence. Now, John says, now the Word was with God. Interesting. 
The phrase means more than simply that the word existed with God. The phrase really does encompass this idea. It pictures, if you will, two personal beings facing one another, engaging in the most intimate, personal, intelligent discourse. Is that not something that we desire? But sometimes it's hard and, and we kind of, we don't always talk straight on, you know, we kind of side by side. But there's something in us that longs to know and to be known. And yet we, have, we fight that because we're fallen beings. If we were absolutely perfect beings, we wouldn't have that problem. So you have, you have this, this pre-existent being with God now. Somebody who is in absolute intimate, intimate fellowship. And that term is, can also, and has been translated, um, face-to-face. Face-to-face. Isn't that beautiful? This statement uh, that the word was with God, this statement makes it abundantly clear, I think, that he is, in fact, separate and distinct from God the Father. A lot of times the Trinity can be very confusing, and and, and unless you're fairly well thought through and studied through, um, to try to understand how does this all work, Jesus was with God and he is God, and how does that work? So this phrase, he's with God, the word was with God, makes it clear that the word, who we'll know as Jesus, not only was preexistent, but now also is distinct and separate from the Father. From all eternity, Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. And again, the word Trinity, you know, is not in the Bible. The doctrine of the Trinity uh, was arrived at early in the history of the church in order to fight some heresies regarding the deity of Christ and how God exists and what the Bible has to teach about God as three in one. And the term Trinity was coined to give us a, a term, a reference point to understand how God exists. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. The first, second, first person, second person, third person of the Trinity. So Jesus then, as the second person of the Trinity, was with the Father in this deep, intimate, face-to-face fellowship. Imagine that. And now what happens next? He's involved in this kind of community, this kind of family, this kind of fellowship. Have you ever, are there people in your life that you just can hardly wait to get with? There are families who actually have people like that in their families. You know, I can, I can hardly wait to get to the reunion. I can hardly wait when we're back together. I can hardly wait to spend time with so-and-so. And they're, such, they're so delightful and so loving and so warm and so ingratiating. And I can hardly wait to be with them. Does anybody have any idea what I'm talking about? It does exist. And so you kind of you kind of just long for that, and, and you get a taste of this intimate kind of face-to-face fellowship that was enjoyed between the Father and the Son. And so 
there, there comes a point then in this, in an act of absolute infinite condescension that Jesus leaves the glory of heaven. Now, you have to kind of get a hold of this. We have a phrase, parting is such what? Sweet sorrow. I mean, we, we all have parted from people. We've all had to say goodbye. We've all had to leave. Some of us, we've had loved ones die. And it, it just, it just it, it's a tearing. We've, we've just had to say goodbye at, a, at, a, at an airport, maybe, with someone that we love dearly. Some, some of us have had kids have to go off to, to war. Uh, many of our families in our church have, have youngsters who are um, in, in, in Afghanistan. Saying goodbye. Separating. Uh, parting. Jesus left the glory of heaven. He left the privilege and the joy of face-to-face communion with his Father. Why did he leave? Why did he leave? Paul says that he, he willingly left and he willingly made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. (laughs) Just just try to get your mind around that. I don't want to go. Who will go for us? Here I am, Lord. I'll go. He he separates himself from home, from his father, from the joy of that kind of intimate fellowship to come here. I don't know about you, but that just overwhelms me. Absolutely overwhelms me. John continues his description of the word. And at this point, it reaches a climax His description reaches a climax when he says the Word existed not only from eternity, not only from having face-to-face fellowship with God the Father, but also, he says, and the Word was God. (laughs) Just this wave crashes over you. go, oh my gosh. The Word was God. Now, this is significant also. Not only did the, did the Greeks not believe that, that this Logos could become man, the Jews, this is, John says this in the face of Jewish monotheism. The Jews believe that here, O Israel, the Lord your God is what? Is one. And now they're hearing this description of the word. Not only was preexistent, not only was with God, but now the word was God. You, you would have, if you were Jewish, this is just going to, you're going, whoa. Those four words, and the word was God. Those four words are the clearest, most direct declaration of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ to be found anywhere in Scripture. 
Was Jesus God? Yes. How do you know? Because John tells me, and the Word was God. It's indisputable. But despite the clarity of that statement and the clarity of that truth, heretical groups, almost from the very moment that John penned these words, heretics, false teachers, false prophets, have twisted their meaning to support their false doctrines denying the deity of Jesus Christ. That is one of the great, great truths of Scripture that is, has been under attack since the very beginning. The truth of Jesus Christ's deity and the full equality with the Father is a non-negotiable element of the Christian faith. In, John, in John's second epistle, his second letter, He writes this. He warned, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Now, in the ancient Near East, there was a practice, especially amongst the Christians, to to take in, to be hospitable to Teachers and people were being persecuted and who were on the road and they would come and, and you would welcome them. But John warns against that practice for people who would bring a, a, a teaching other than that which they had learned. Believers are not to aid heretical false teachers. If we do aid them, we, in effect, he says, we participate in their wicked work. We're making it easy for them. Now, for some of us, that would seem absolutely an uncharitable, unloving thing to do, is to, is to not welcome somebody. But it is justified. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 1. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally, what? Condemned. I mean, this is how serious it is to make sure that you still are standing on the truth and no one dissuades you. Someone who comes and and brings a different gospel, a different testimony about Christ or the gospel of grace, that person is not to be accepted. He goes on and he says, As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you have accepted, let him be eternally condemned. False teachers who deny the deity of Christ and who deny the gospel of grace are under God's condemnation. Those are the two most important doctrines for us, and those are the two doctrines that hell attacks the most consistently. The deity of Jesus Christ. 
And the gospel of salvation, the gospel of grace through faith. We are saved by grace through faith alone, not of works. Paul says that any man should boast. This is God's grace. This is God's doing. Every single false religion, every single false teacher, every single um, false philosophy will deny, one, that Jesus is God. And number two, uh, they will say you, you have to earn your way to salvation, in effect. You have to be good enough. I had people last night in our congregation, still confused about this, telling me after the service, well, yeah, but doesn't, doesn't God want us to, doesn't he hold us accountable? Yes, he holds us accountable. But that's not the basis on which we're saved. You don't get into heaven by crewing heavenly brownie points. This is God's grace and his mercy extended to us. And we receive it with humility and gratitude. But those two doctrines are absolutely essential. Absolutely essential to know and to understand. When someone comes knocking at your door, I don't argue. I don't try to convert them. I've tried for years and years and years. I'm a pastor. I study the Bible every day. I know the truth. You cannot make any headway. These people are so deeply ingrained in errors and lies, in heresy, it is just absolutely tragic. It breaks your heart. I had one family tell me, well, we, we invite them in, and, and we invite them to pray with us. I said, oh, that only gives validity to that. Both Jesus and Paul, both of them, Emphasize the deadly danger of false teachers. Just and they, they both describe them as wolves in disguise. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew chapter seven. He says, "Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Don't get faked out." In Acts chapter twenty, here's Paul. Paul is separating now from the Ephesian elders. And he's, he knows and they know that they'll never see each other this side of heaven again. And they've spent years together. They love each other. And they're hugging on each other and kissing one another and crying. And Paul departs and he says these words. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. He warns them. False teachers, those who deny the deity of Christ and the gospel of grace are not to be welcomed. They are rather to be avoided and guarded against. Confusion about the deity of Jesus Christ, may I suggest to you, is inexcusable for the Christian. It's inexcusable. Why? Because the biblical teaching from John is so clear and it's so unmistakable. Jesus was God. The Word was God. Are you with me? Jesus Christ is, according to John, He is the eternally pre-existent Word who enjoys full face-to-face communing and divine life with the Father and is, at the same time, Himself God. The fact that 
one may be said to be with the other, clearly differentiates the two, and yet though they are distinct, there is no disharmony. You get me? There is no disharmony. John's expression to us points us to the very perfect unity in which the Father and the Son are joined. In fact, Jesus speaks about it when he says, I and the Father are one. Talking about the unity in which they are uh, united, if you will. Now all that, to say this, the world in which we live is confused. Is that a fair statement? The world in which we live is clueless. The world in which we... Were you and I clueless and confused before we became Christians? Yeah. The world in which we live is looking looking for a clear diagnosis, if you will, of our, of, of, of our condition. They know something's not right. And so the world is looking for a diagnosis. The world is looking also for the possibilities of some kind of renewal, some kind of healing, some kind of restoration in this world, man's condition. And there are countless voices providing messages that promise to alleviate the struggles of our lives and the questions that plague us. Everybody has an answer. Everybody has a solution. If you don't believe me, just watch late night TV. And for three easy payments of $39.95, you can get the latest CD series on how to solve the problems of your life. I'm serious. I mean, we hear all manner of political and economic voices today, especially today, don't we? We hear all these voices arguing that if we would just reallocate, if we could just reorganize, if we could just restructure, we could build a sort of world where equity and charity would win the day. Doesn't that sound beautiful? There are other voices. Other voices more deeply personal, arguing that the problem is not sociological. The problem, rather, is human. It's human. Now, we would probably go there, wouldn't we? You see, the human soul is in need of repair or renewal. Oh, yes, I think we're on to something. And if we, if we could just provide the right education, if we could provide just the right therapy or the right vision of our neighbor, then all would be made right. Do you hear those voices? Absolutely. Absolutely. Human solutions. Not God's solutions. Economic solutions. Sociological solutions. There's all these voices speaking at us. Do you know that the first verses of John's Gospel 
Those verses are not a message that offers hope. Do you know that? Those verses are about the message that is the only hope. It's not one message among many. It's the message. It's the one message that is the only hope. Those verses are not about an idea. Those verses are about a person. Verse 14 tells us that the Word became flesh. Why? Because God was not intent on simply communicating with us about mere concepts. He's intent on communicating with us about Himself. How better to try to communicate to somebody, you go right to them yourself, let me tell you. The Word became flesh. Tells us that God's message is accessible. That it's not hidden. It's not something just for the mystics or the scholars. It's right there. You don't need to be a seminary graduate to read this Bible, read this living Word and understand it. No, this message was lived in the world It was touched, it was heard by many, many people. Accessible. The Word became flesh tells us that the man Jesus was no mere mortal. He was not simply an inspired carpenter nor a model human. Jesus was God Himself. Taking on the clothing of humanity. Think about this. God taking on humanity. Embracing it fully and eternally. In the person of Jesus Christ, God is eternally clothed in humanity. Do you know that? For all eternity? He walked in this humanity. He spoke through it. And he delivered the reality of God to the world in a manner that had never, ever been done before. Never experienced He is God's final word to us. John, in his opening verses, tells us that something absolutely definitive, something final, happened in time and space and history back there in the first century. Something absolutely objective and absolute. Something you can absolutely depend upon. He says, in effect, that a marker has been placed in human history. And all of humanity is now being called to mark our time and our progress by that marker. Jesus is the reference point. God become flesh is our reference point. He is the one with whom we must deal. Nobody else. You cannot get away. You cannot ignore him. Jesus has been set down in human history, God in the flesh. The question now is, who do you say that Jesus is? He asked that question of his disciples. Who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that he is? And how does what you say about him affect how you live? Is he God? 
Is he a teacher? Is he your heavenly butler? Is he there just to meet your needs? Who is he? I submit to you, he's God. Clearly God. And as God, he is to be what? Reverenced. Worshipped. Obeyed. Amen? Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord. We do sit here in utter amazement of who you are and what you've done and who Jesus is. And as we do so, we, we are grateful, we are humbled, and Lord, we do worship you. Jesus. Jesus. You are Lord. We commit our way to you. We've come to the table earlier to be reminded, to remind ourselves, one another, of who you are, what you've done. And again, we reflect. You are worthy of all of our obedience, our faith, our trust. We thank you that you are sovereign, that you rule. And we do pray your will be done because we know that it's the very best. Thank you, Lord. Amen.